Good morning. Our scripture this morning is going to be from Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. I'd ask that you please turn there. And Dwayne, thank you so much for playing Abide With Me. That is my favorite hymn. In my opinion, it is the best hymn. Um, It is written by a man, and I think it's so appropriate for today's sermon. It's written by a man who has lost his family at sea. He writes, When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. It's written from a man in desperation, and that is so fitting for today. Because our passage is filled with desperation. And we learn in it that no matter the walk of life that we come from, we are not exempt from our need for a Savior. Yes, we learn that whether you are in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, at all times, or if this is your first time, or if you've never been to church at all, Whether you are a healthy person and everything's going your way, or if your world is crumbling around you, no matter the case, we all need the Lord this morning desperately, just like the people in our passage. So wherever we're coming from, it is a blessed truth that all we need to do is come to our Lord Come to our Savior for help in our time of need, and he will meet us. As Hebrews 4.13 says, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let's read our passage. Mark 5.21-43. It's a long passage, but we are going to read it all today. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Gairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing all around you, and yet you say... Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John and the the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother by the and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, I just ask humbly that you'd show us our desperation for you today. And Lord, that you would be with all of those desperate in this church now. And Lord, just like for Gyrus and just like for this woman, I pray that you come into our life. Make yourself our, our Lord. And Lord, I pray that this, this, this message is glorifying to you that this is true to you i pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth bring you glory and are pleasing and lord i pray for your holy spirit to fill me and lord i pray for it to to fill everyone in this congregation today lord i pray that you would wipe anything i say that is incorrect from their minds and lord allow them to keep all that is true and that is good and i ask this in your son's holy name amen Today's passage begins with Jesus returning from the Gerasenes back to Capernaum. He is met there by Gairus, a ruler of the synagogue. This man approaches Jesus, falls at his feet, and I'm thinking perhaps holding on to his heels and implores him, begs him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The word for implore in this passage, the Greek word is parakaleo. It only appears in the Gospel of Mark nine times. Five of those nine times are in this chapter alone. You see it when Legion begs not to be sent into the abyss. Or again, when Legion begs to instead be cast into the pigs. The Gerasene locals beg Jesus to leave, as funny as that is. And then the previously possessed man begs Jesus that he could go with him. So it seems to me that an overall theme for this passage in Mark 5 is one of begging. And it's one of desperation. And that is the tone of this passage, and I hope that as I preach that that is the tone that I convey, it is one of desperate urgency. Now, I'll make the case 
that if, if any of these instances of begging in Mark 5, no one begs with as much desperation as Gyrus does. And to do this, let's consider what it would take to bring a ruler of the synagogue to his knees in such a humble way. No, a ruler of a synagogue was something like a pastor in today's time. There was a little bit more of a high-status role. The ruler of the synagogue presided over the affairs of the synagogue and gave lessons and messages at the synagogue. This was an honorable position. Um, most of these rulers were also Pharisees. And if you think about it, Gairus was likely very uncertain of Jesus. And if he was a Pharisee, he might have had mixed feelings about Jesus. He would have heard reports about him, that he is a healing man. But as a Pharisee and in his background, he would have been kind of uncertain about him. But Gairus was desperate. He was out of options. We don't know how long his daughter was sick, but we know that now the situation was, was, was very dire for her and for him. His desperation pushed him to faith in a way that I don't think anything else would have been able. And friends, we need to know that God uses our desperate situations in our life to help us grow in faith, increase in our faith. Sometimes it takes getting put in a corner for us to realize that we are helpless to help ourselves, for us to reach out to the one that we should have always been reaching out to. So Gyrus sets aside his status and all uncertainty that he might have And he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Please, Lord, you have to help my little girl. Begging is such a lowly state. But this is exactly how we should approach Jesus in our time of need. This This is how exactly we should approach Jesus, especially for our salvation. Because that is what desperation means. Desperation means that you are now helpless to do anything to help yourself. You have no means of accomplishing what you need on your own. So by nature what desperation is, is to seek out some alternative. To seek out something that could save you from the situation you're in. And friends, for us, and in terms of salvation and being right with the Lord, we have outlasted all of our options to becoming right with God. We, can, we have no means of our own doing to become right with him, to pay for our sin, to enter heaven and find our salvation. We are completely and wholly desperate for Jesus to give us that salvation. So we, like Gyrus, must set aside our pride and our status we must forget the norms that bound us, and we must come to Jesus humbly and needy with open hands. There, Jesus will respond to us. But let's keep on going. Mark five twenty four through 29. 
I want you to consider this story from Gairus' point of view. He believes that Jesus must lay his hands on his daughter for her to live. And as they travel through town, she inches closer and closer to death by the minute. Everything, in my mind, for his, would have been an obstacle to him. Think of how he must have been feeling in this moment. The rushing of his heart, the weakness of his knees, the shortness of his breath, the the panic that he must have been experiencing. Jesus is presented as a man of action in Mark. Everything he does is immediate, according to Mark. Immediately this and immediately that. Jesus seems to be the sort of man whose eyes are always set on the next destination. He is always there to do everything he does as quickly and as intentionally as possible all the way to the cross. That, has, that is how Mark presents Jesus. But nothing, ironically, seems immediate in this story for Gairus. But Jesus is a man of reason, too. And there's a reason and there's a purpose for this anxiousness. Notably, with an apparent interruption to the narrative, to the story, we are met by yet another desperate individual. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And 12 is a significant number in this passage. This woman had suffered much at the hands of many things. First, I'd say that this woman has suffered much at the hands of her condition. She was constantly bleeding. And for, for 12 years she was bleeding. She would have been anemic. She would have been weak. She would have felt awful at all times. And second, she had suffered much at the hands of physicians. You know, medicine wasn't what it was today back then, 2,000 years ago. And she had spent all of the money that she had everything she had in attempts to get better. But despite those attempts, though, she only grew worse, the scripture says. And third, she suffered much under Jewish law. You see, Leviticus 15 teaches that when a woman is bleeding, she becomes impure. And for the entire time that this woman is bleeding that she must stay to herself. And if someone comes in contact with this bleeding woman or even comes in contact with something that this woman had been sitting on or laying on, then they too become unclean, which bars them from doing anything in the synagogue or the temple. It's a whole ritual that you have to go underneath. And for some of us, like say, if we come in contact with, with blood, it's an inconvenience. We wash ourselves, and the next, and the rest, at the end of the day, we're, we're clean again. But for this woman, for 12 years, she lived unclean, unable to touch anybody. I think this could have prevented her from ever being married. She would have not been able to have children. And as a single woman, in that time, would have been a horrible fate. She could not even go to synagogue and, and seek comfort from her fellow Jews. Perhaps more than anything, she suffered much under the Jewish law. This woman was poor. She had nothing to her name. She was weak. And because of her, 
impurity. She suffered much. But she had heard the reports about Jesus. The same as Gyrus had heard. Now Gyrus likely knew of this individual. Likely knew of her condition. If they both lived in Capernaum, he definitely knew of this woman. To a ruler of the synagogue, thinking to myself, this woman may have only been seen as her condition. She is known to be an inconvenience. She is known to be someone who is better to simply be avoided. And besides, we, we, all, we know how ruthless at times Pharisees can be with the law. So you're just imagining the kind of dynamic that Gyrus and this woman might have had. But this woman was desperate, just as Gyrus. She lived alone for 12 years, not married. She was an outcast. She had done everything that she could have possibly done for herself. Her only hope now was Jesus. So despite her condition, she works her way through the busy crowd unclean and she's pushing men and women aside and i just imagine her leaping just to touch the fringe of jesus's clothes just the fringe of his garment she keeps on telling herself for she reasoned that if she if if jesus was who she had heard if she was if he was who she thought he was then that would be enough That is all that she would have to do. All she would have to do is just touch his garment and she would be made well. And so she leaps through the crowd and she touches Jesus' garment. And the scripture says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. Immediately. Jesus stops. He turns about in the crowd, and I imagine this crowd would have gone silent. Why has the teacher stopped? Is he going to say something important? And he says, he he asks a question, he says, who touched my garments? And the disciples were confused. What do you mean? Who touched me? There's so many people around this crowd. Everyone's touching you, Jesus. Yet Jesus continues to look. If I were Gyrus at this moment, my daughter is dying, I'd be thinking to myself, why did we stop? Why did we stop? We have to go. But keep on going in Mark 5, 33. This woman had touched a holy man, and she was healed. He was who she thought him to be, but she knew that she was unclean. So though she was joyous for a moment because her condition was now, was now healed, she must have thought to herself, well, what happens now? I just touched a holy man. I'm unclean. You know, consider the consequences that she must have faced over and over just for touching another person. In terms of just ordinary people, if you, if you bumped into them and, and she's unclean, you know, they would have been angry. They would have felt inconvenienced. I bet you at times this woman may have even been struck by people just because she touched them. 
what would the consequences have been if that's for ordinary people what would the consequences have been if she touched an important person like a ruler of a synagogue what if she bumped into a pharisee would they not flip out on her even more she knew this what would the consequences be she must have thought if i touched not just a pharisee but the lord What are the consequences for me? What would happen? So Jesus asks, who touched me? And the woman, with fear and trembling, falls down before Jesus and tells him the whole truth. Says, Jesus, I've been sick for a long time. For 12 years, I've been bleeding. I've tried everything. I've I've prayed. I've spent everything I have to be healed. I've I've lived as an outcast for these 12 years. I've, I've not been able to enjoy just even basic human touch. And so, Jesus, I'm desperate. I, I had to do this. I had to push through the crowd. I had to reach out and leap and just touch the fringe of your garment. I had to do it. And no doubt she was expecting the same response that she had always received from so many others. But Jesus responds with more love than she could have possibly imagined. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. If you're not right with the Lord today, or if you feel like you just can't approach him, or if you feel like you're just not worth his time, know that you, like this woman, are not an inconvenience to Jesus. You are not too unclean for Jesus. You're not too broken for Jesus, even if you've been abused by the world and by the church, you will not be abused by Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've never been to church before. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor. You can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're the bleeding woman or the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus will save you with just a mustard seed worth of faith. Jesus will consider you like this woman, his daughter, his son. So why did Jesus stop? Why did he stop and ask who touched him? He could have just kept going knowing what had happened. Well, he does this for many reasons for all of us today reading it, but also particularly for two people in this passage. And the first primarily is for the woman. He wants her to know. Touching me was not what healed you. Woman, your faith healed you. And second, you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not like the others. And third, he wants her to know, I consider you a daughter. Even if your own parents have abandoned you, even if you're you're no one's daughter in this world, I consider you a daughter. But a second person this was for was also Gyrus. You see, his daughter was 12 years old. 
He might have known this woman, but he might have not known that she had been bleeding for 12 years. See, I'm right. And Gyrus did know this woman, and he did only think of her in terms of her condition. What does that do to his heart? Man, what does that do to his heart? Sometimes we can become jaded at God because we, in all of our suffering, in all of our troubles and our affliction, we're, we're crying out to God, yet we see him helping so many other people, and you just feel like you're abandoned. And so you become jaded towards God because, don't you see me? I see you at work. I see people's relationship with you abounding, yet I'm here. I've been in this, this season for months, years, and you're helping all these people, but not me. And maybe you become jaded at God. Sometimes, even if it doesn't make sense, we can become jaded at other people because they are receiving blessings from God. Because we think, man, I've been suffering for so long. It's, like, it's almost like a, a jealous resentment that they are receiving something that you've been praying for much longer than them. But what's the solution to that? What, what throws all of that into the bin? It is one word. It's daughter. Gyrus, how can you, with your daughter dying, be upset with me for helping my daughter? So when we think of it in that terms, our jaded attitude kind of fades away. Because I'm not the only son of God. And you're not the only sons and daughters of God. Everyone in Christ are. How can we be upset with God for taking care of his children? We can't. Now, moving on in verses 35. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, saying to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Someone comes from Gairus' house and says, Your daughter's dead. Yeah, in the same sentence, Jesus is saying, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Someone tells Gairus, your daughter's dead. There's a time for panic in our life, for fear. But then sometimes your deepest fear is realized. And then instead of the heart rate, the heavy, beating, the, the, the heavy breathing and the weak knees, life just goes numb. And life was numb for Gyrus in this moment, I can only imagine. He has just lost, so he thinks, the most precious thing in his life. His little girl. But Jesus simply says to Gairus, Do not fear, only believe. If another man says this to you in your grief, this is terrible comfort. Why are you worried so much? Just have more faith. It's like, why are you so concerned? Don't you know the truths of Scripture? This is terrible, terrible advice. It's terrible comfort from anyone but Jesus. Because when the Lord tells you, do not be afraid, only believe, you can do it. You can hold on to that. You can trust Jesus because he holds in his hands the future. And he has the power to do with it whatever he pleases. 
He has the power to change what he pleases. So if he tells you, and he does tell us, do not be afraid, we can do that. But with Gyrus confused and uncertain, listening to Jesus, I'm like, okay. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and Gyrus back into the house. And they are met by a group of people who are wailers. And that day it was common for people to hire fake mourners, wailers, to be at a gravesite where someone's died and to express grief. And it was fake grief. But I can imagine Jesus just being irritated with that kind of pompous kind of show. And so he comes up to them and he says, why are you making a commotion? Why are you weeping? And he says to them, the child's not dead. It's only sleeping. And they all laughed at him. They laughed at him. I'll tell you one thing. It's never a good idea to laugh at the Lord. It never is. Jesus wasn't making a poor time joke here. No, he was being serious. He really meant that. He told them, your daughter is not dead. She's only sleeping. He was speaking a deep truth, which is that for those in Christ, all that have passed away are not truly gone. For those in Christ, they are only sleeping, and they are waiting for the Savior's loving hands to come and wake them up from their slumber. And when they wake, they will be in a better world full of joy and free of sorrows. And we who are in Christ will get to see our loved ones again. For those who don't understand this, they're going to laugh. What do you mean? They're dead. They're gone. But for those who do understand this, for those who do believe it, this is the hope of our life. This is something to hold on to, that those who are dead aren't truly dead. In in 541, after removing these wailers from the house, Jesus took Gairus and Gairus' wife and the three disciples that were with him and went into the room where the child was. And there, Jesus holds her little hand And I love that detail. I wish we had more descriptions of Jesus in this moment beyond that. I wish we had more descriptions of the love that must have been in Jesus' eyes. Or the tenderness of Jesus' touch. Or the softness of his voice. But holding on to this little girl's hand, he says to the girl, Talitha Kumi. Now Tim Keller who is now sleeping, he has passed. Now, he notes that this would have been similar to Jesus saying, honey, it's time to wake up. Or, in a more cute way, it would have been the equivalent of Jesus saying to the girl, upsie daisy. But our scripture says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, The girl got up and began walking. Also immediately, they were overcome with amazement, as they should be. 
I've thought to myself as I was writing this, what is the big deal about touch in this passage? Why is Gyrus so concerned about Jesus actually laying hands on his daughter? Why is this woman so concerned about actually touching Jesus' robe? You know, what is so important about it? And some commentaries that I've read have said, and I disagree with this, that this is a demonstration of their lack of faith. That they're so fascinated with touch, it's just a lack of faith. Because they should know that Jesus is a man of authority, and it is quite enough for him just to say it, and it will be done. They should have known that. But I don't think so. Because Jesus works with the measure of faith that we have. If it includes touch, it includes touch. And furthermore, Jesus doesn't rebuke Gyrus. He actually does what he was asked. He could have corrected Gyrus's faith by simply saying, upsy-daisy, and then turning to Gyrus and saying, see, Gyrus, I didn't have to touch her. But no, he chooses to hold her hand. Why? Well, this is just my theory. If it's not true of this passage, I know that it is true. It's because there is something incredibly precious about the touch of our Savior. There is something incredibly precious that the same hands that molded us out of clay in the beginning, and that the same hands that formed us in our mother's womb, intricately weaving us together, something so precious that these same hands are now going to give life once again to this little girl. There's something so precious about that. And I want you to know that this is true of children that Jesus doesn't bring back today. This is true for those who die in the womb or just outside of it. There is something precious to it about the death of young children. It's weird to say that, about babies dying. And it's that they never do leave the loving hands, the loving presence of Jesus. They are simply transported from one short life to a life of abundance and joy, and we will get to see them again. They, are, they live just for just a moment, and they never know the sorrows of the world. Their first breath is in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. It's a blessed thing to know that we will see them again one day, just as Gaius got to see his daughter again in this time. Now, this passage is, has two people in it, full of desperation. And they're so different, but they're also so similar. You know, it's so different because one is a ruler of the synagogue, and it's just this holy position, and then one is this unholy woman, unclean woman who has never been to synagogue. And they're so different. But they both come to Jesus in their desperation. They both know that there is nothing that I can do for myself any longer. 
I must come to the Lord because he is the only one who can help me. And we're going to close now, but we're going to have a time of contemplation. We're going to have a time of meditation. And I want each of you to think how alike, though different, how alike you are to these two people in this passage. My friends, I can tell each and every one of you that you are desperate. You are desperate for the Lord. So let's contemplate on that now.